everybody angry at everybody else? You've got Nazis now marching in the streets. You've got anti-fascists fighting them. You've got mass anarchists punching Nazis. And in the middle of it, a lot of us are living lives where we're finding surprising tension points where it comes to race and our relations with people who otherwise we felt like we saw as just regular people or just friends. Well, into that chaos and all this anger, there's an urgent need for people to speak with clarity and peace. And one of our friends who we're really honored to know, who speaks really well to points of racial tension, is our friend Judy Dominic. Judy, it's great to have you today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, we recorded an earlier conversation <laughs> with you. I think we should just mention it. No, this is great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because we recorded it, and while Tim was editing it and preparing to send it out into the world, Charlottesville happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So we had this like really interesting, beautiful, relevant conversation on yep. race, and then like two weeks later, all of a sudden, like we listened to it, and there's like there's no way yeah. today that we would be talking about yeah. some of the tensions that we're talking mm-hmm. about without mentioning these. Yeah, things. just something felt missing. Like we like there was this elephant in the room that nobody was talking about, and it was on that topic. So we thought we need to. We need to dive back into the studio and re-record this. Yeah, so Judy, thanks <laughs> here for... Here we all are. Yeah, Thank you so much are. for doing this. I um, I hated sending that email. I was like, oh, man, she's kind of so upset. Sorry. Remember that hour-long conversation <laughs> that was really great and we all loved? Can we do it again? I can't yeah. possibly repeat any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got new wonders waiting for you on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and even now, like, as we're... As we're recording this conversation, there's going to be oh, a little yeah. editing between now and release... And I think the the Juggalos, who are fans of the band Insane Clown Posse, right? They're mm-hmm. a, group, a group who paint their face, and the <laughs> FBI has declared them a terrorist group. But they're just a group of fans of this band Insane Clown Posse. And uh, pro-Trump supporters and anti-Trump supporters are converging on Washington, D.C. Oh, man. To hold simultaneous protests and events related to different things. So we may record this podcast... And something may blow up there, but we're just going to go through with it. You know, this time, it's going on air. A year, a year ago, that would have been like an Onion news article. <laughs> yeah. A headline in the Onion.com. Now it's real life. Yeah. It's actually happening. It gives the satirists almost no work to do. Exactly. Like, I, I, I just can print the New York Times and we're good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, Judy, it's great to be here. Great to have you here. And we've enjoyed your um, insights over the mm-hmm. years. Um You've been, you're part of our church community yeah. and you lead music there. And then we also uh, read a lot of your writing as it pops up because we're friends with you. So mm-hmm. thanks. Thanks for your voice. Um, can you tell us about how uh, you see your role in sort of the ongoing conversation about race in our country? Like what sort of space do you see yourself occupying there? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the, well, I guess my role is, primarily as a bridge builder yeah and it's not hey everybody let's just get along but it's really Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what are the points of tension where are people missing each other and you know if you're even trying to get in between two people who are trying to work something out if one person's being violently abusive to the other you can't just say hey can't you guys just get along (laughs) you have to actually address the abuse there has to be some sort of redress or repentance you know and and so there's there's a lot of delicate juggling that goes on. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of feel like I live between two worlds. I have 
really good friends who are you know leftist activists and yeah. uh, and you know and I love them dearly and I have other friends who are conservative and you know who some of them voted for Trump and I love them dearly too yeah and they literally think the worst of each other mm-hmm. but I'm able to have relationships with both and I'm constantly trying to sort of get into the spaces of various people so I can understand them. So I have sort of a missional approach. Mm -hmm. um, And I always think of it through the lens of, you know, if you wanted to practice incarnation, say like um, enter another person's country, you would figure out what their history is, Mm -hmm. what are the traditions, what are the major uh, things that shaped their belief systems or their language or the way that they view things, you know, and yeah. and you can come across some really fascinating differences. We were talking about this before we started recording, you know, <laughs> about the the concept of in some countries there's no such things as li- there's no such thing as lines, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. You just yeah. like you just push forward, and if you if you don't, if you're like an American and you're like, well, that's really kind of rude and inconsiderate, <laughs> you will not get a ticket to that train. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. will not get on ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was in the Philippines recently and if i hadn't pushed through that line i wouldn't have gotten oh, yeah. my breakfast of fried chicken and garlic exactly. rice at McDonald's. <laughs> think of what you would have missed yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So. yeah oh man yeah we um we uh oh my train of thought just left me yeah we're uh, it's interesting so bringing up yeah living overseas it was always interesting to hear people that like kind of like us from the u.s living in in we were in moscow russia and talking to people who like we would bring up simple historical or like cultural artifacts of that country like Dostoevsky and they'd be like oh who's that right and I would be so shocked like you haven't like bef- you knew you're like you planned on coming here like you you, you weren't just dropped in this country why why didn't you do some of the homework like of yeah. actually learning about uh about where you're living and like caring about those around you I don't know it was very surprising to hear like simple even like the very like you know Dostoevsky is one of the probably most popular yeah. Russian authors out there it's like why how did how did you miss that? Like I don't know. It was always surprising to hear because I thought, isn't that like your first? Isn't that what you'd want to do first before even like before even stepping start, foot? Start by yeah. trying to understand. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the problem. A lot of people want to just they have their own agenda, and yeah. so they're like, these people just need to get with my program, yeah. and it's fine. You can you can you know you can say that and you can live that way, yeah. but you're not going to make much difference, um, yeah. and you're not going to really bring along too many people yeah and mm-hmm. nobody likes to be approached like first off like you're an idiot <laughs> you know and you're a bigot and you're a racist and you suck mm-hmm. yeah. like oh you're right yeah. you know i've never seen that happen. i'm so sorry <laughs> never, yeah, yeah. even if that were true yeah you know that approach mm-hmm. is really ineffective yeah. <laughs> you know, so. yeah well you actually moved into this from the medical field yeah. right right so what was the what was the um, process by which you decided, rather than doing this, I need to be uh, speaking to these issues? I'm sure it was a long journey. And were there any books that you read along the way that sort of helped you go through that? I think it was a series of life experiences, really. And you know, I didn't one day wake up and think, oh, I don't want to practice medicine anymore. It was actually very personal. Um, you know, I practiced medicine at a cancer hospital for about almost eight years, and huh. then. Um, my husband and I met and married, and then we ended up moving to a different city, and I was really pretty burned out at that point. So I took about a year off to just decompress. 
And we were, I was joking, you know, for about a year, I kept hearing my pager go off. <laughs> and it wasn't going off. I was like, man, I was really stressed out. Um, and then my daughter was born, and, and my husband's job afforded us the luxury of, you know, me being able to stay home with her and, and just raise her. And, uh, and then we moved to Atlanta from Texas. And I have to back up a little bit, but, you know, I became a Christian in college. Mm-hmm. And my experience was... Uh, probably characterized by white evangelical, predominantly mm-hmm. white evangelical settings. You know, my church, the fellowships that I chose to be a part of, yeah. um, and, and so I was really immersed in this world. And then when I moved to Atlanta, uh, it just had a very different demographic demographic makeup, and it had mm-hmm. a very different history. And you know, I, I I had lived in and grown up in Houston, which was very international and cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. and um, and suddenly I found myself in Atlanta, which is also a big city and sort of the heart of the civil rights movement way back in the mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, but which is really not way back. Um, and, you know, Atlanta is majority African-American, you know, if you look at the demographics. Um, and I found myself still in these predominantly white evangelical mm-hmm. settings, church, and but the it, it was like I couldn't penetrate this social wall mm-hmm. as yeah. an Asian-American. And it was just really persistent, whether it was attempted play dates or play groups or Bible study or, you know, anything like that. And I remember just one day it, it, out of sheer exhaustion, just collapsing on, in the middle of the floor, just crying. Yeah. And, and I, I was taken back to seventh grade when I felt all these similar things of being on the outside of, you know, the, the kids who were considered cool and mm-hmm. worth talking to and worth getting to know. And I was like, I don't know. Uh, I just feel like I need to do something different. And so we pursued a multi-ethnic church experience after that. And I just thought I'd never tried that. You know, uh, when I was younger, I had gone to a Chinese church for mm-hmm. about a year and or a Taiwanese church when I was growing up. And my parents are from Taiwan. And so in this multi-ethnic community, it was literally half white, half black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a few people that looked like me and a few people who were Hispanic. And um, suddenly I was having to face my own anti-black prejudice mm. that I had never really had a face before. And I was in community with people that I had had beliefs about, but I'd never really spent a lot of time with. You know, I could say, well, I have a black friend that I have lunch with, <laughs> you know, who's a coworker. But yeah. this was really different, like being invited to birthday parties and getting to know people and getting to know like basically I use the word immersion a lot because it's like Mm -hmm. really being immersed in someone else's world and it took probably about a year of being in that environment before I kind of worked through all the major prejudices that I had held on to and I didn't even realize that I had had and while while we were at that church uh, Trayvon Martin was was killed and I remember what it did to the community mm. and uh, people in the church were posting very different things on Facebook. And, you know, it was like this veneer of cordiality between the races, just mm. va- it just evaporated. Yeah. Like people were very hurt by each other. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. Wow. They didn't want to talk to each other. And I remember trying to facilitate a conversation in my own home uh, with this small group that we were hosting and nobody wanted to talk. Yeah. 
So I was like, you know, there's got to be a way to help people have these conversations. Yeah. And long story short, that's kind of when my journey began and I began to write yeah. about this issue. Yeah, uh-huh. and it's it's um, it's really interesting trying to validate, validating the way you validate a lot of the pain, a lot of the suffering, but your, your voice is uh, gentle when you write and when you speak. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. Um, but you also kind of like, first you mentioned your parents are from Taiwan and living in a black and white, in the middle of a black and white uh, uh, tension. Um, I know in a lot of ways you sort of, you occupy an interesting space within that conversation. What do you think it means for you to be uh, sort of of Asian descent mm. in a conversation that if if people aren't listening carefully is a black and white mm. Mm. conversation? Yeah, uh, I think it's important to even understand the history of immigration in our country. You know, mm-hmm. there was the uh, Immigration Act in 1965 that then opened up immigration to many of the Asian countries that were not previously allowed to to send people, you know. And my dad uh, benefited from that because in 1969, he was able to come to the United States as a graduate student and pursue his studies here. And he remained, and then he, you know, proposed to my mother, went back to Taiwan, married her, and then brought her back to the United States the following year, you know. And um, I think that they experienced a lot of marginalization and racism and they found comfort in their own Taiwanese community mm-hmm. uh, and kind of mutual support, but also not necessarily because what the immigration process did was it concentrated the most competitive, high-achieving, neurotic people. <laughs> like, who does this, right? Like, the most overachieving, intense people of the entire country <laughs> apply to come here. And then you think, that's what Taiwanese people are like. But that's mm. not reality, right? It's just not reality. And they came as graduate students and, and people who um, were in the sciences and, and, you know, high achievers. Very different from the experience of refugees yeah. uh, who are from war-torn countries. Um, and um, some of them suffer severe poverty. And you'll see all the same uh, things in their communities that you see in the poor uh, minority communities anywhere in, in, in American cities. You know, mm-hmm. you see crime, you see violence, you see gangs, you see drug addiction, you see, you know, all kinds of things. Same thing, you know. Yeah. And and so I think as a Taiwanese American, somebody who has was born here, who has grown up here, mm-hmm. I've experienced both a sense of marginalization, also a sense of like assimilation and privilege yeah you know because my parents were high achievers and they did manage to carve out a middle life middle class lifestyle for us and afforded us all the opportunities to go to college and Mm. they emphasized the importance of our studies and you know you will become nothing if you don't get straight a's (laughs) you know (laughs) and that actually came from a particular place because taiwan was pretty much wrecked after World War II. Yeah. You know, it was a Japanese colony for 50 years. So it experienced uh, racial oppression under imperialist Japan. Mm-hmm. And 10,000 people died over those 50 years in uprisings. Wow. And so it's a very traumatized culture. Uh, I understand this, this, like what it, for, 
what living under that sort of ethnic superiority or supremacy does to people yeah. makes them very angry and very loud and like when when you're when you're constantly being repressed you know it's like don't blame people if they get a little bit angry and they want to bomb a government car you yeah, know yeah. it's like it's like you know let peace prevail it's like well stop being yeah. you know such a butthole you yeah. know so anyway um kind of having that knowledge of my parents background and then experiencing you know having graduate degrees and mm-hmm. being a professional and and you know the privileges of of all of that i understand how people can be lulled into a certain kind of thinking oh i've earned all these things and all that you know um and i also understand like what it's like to be you know oppressed um just from because you know you don't go through experience that my grandparents and my parents went through without a lot of really hard things going on my yeah. my father has uh, he's mentally ill and and has and that has caused a tremendous amount of pain in our family my mother also um you know just some of the ways that, that that she interacted with us were 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 difficult but you'll see all those same things in all the body of literature on holocaust survivors and their descendants you know yeah so generational trauma correct kind of yeah so you've lived in the middle of it and uh so a sense of a sense of sort of racial tension um might be not intuitive but it might be easier to unlock or for you to make sense of it so as you're because you do a lot of writing and you do a lot of helping lead other people into these conversations is there some literature you kind of point people to to help them get oriented to the tensions or to help lead them towards a reconciling Mm. conversation. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the misunderstanding is even based in lack of knowledge. Mm. So first of all, if you if you can get people interested in filling in their knowledge gaps, Mm -hmm. uh, it can it can help. Right. But they have to be interested. And I think that I don't know how to help people who already think they know everything, but I can Mm -hmm. help people who are interested in growing and who have the humility to learn and say, you know, how could I possibly know everything, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm currently reading a book called The Color of Law. Oh, yeah. Uh, by Richard Rothstein. And it's the story of basically how the American government segregated the country huh. systematically. Yeah. And it's a forgotten history. You know, it's a yeah. very important book. NPR, Terry Gross, uh, did an interview with Richard Rothstein back in May. So if people want sort of a shorthand version of that, they can Google it. Um, And and then another book that was really impactful for me, it was like Slavery by Another Name, Mm. Um, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II, and that's by Douglas Blackman. And then uh, the third one that's really like deeply historical but uses uh, narrative is Isabel Wilkerson's warmth, The Warmth of Other Suns, oh, yeah. which is uh, the story of America's great migration, how like six million African-Americans from the South fled to the North and the West mm-hmm. and how that changed the whole landscape of the country. Oh, yeah. So people just kind of think that these, um, I don't know, uh, Richard Rothstein calls them ghettos because he said, we don't like to use the term because it implies a sort of systematic creation. You know, we can talk about the Jewish ghettos in, you know, in Europe, yeah. but we, we won't, we talk about um, ghettos here. We use terms like the inner city, you know, mm. but that's, yeah. we know what that means, right? Yeah. We mm-hmm. just don't want to say it. Um, and then we um, also 
use words like we want to promote diversity instead of well we really need to promote integration <laughs> because yeah. there's segregation right mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just try to get people to think about things differently first giving them information to interact with yeah and then also just different ways of thinking about things you know I write from the perspective of faith because I'm a Christian yeah and so how do Christians who believe in the Bible and value the Bible, you know, approach these things? Because there's a breakdown there in even the way that we read these, yeah. these religious texts mm -hmm. and, and their implications, right? So, yeah. and it's, it's always changing and evolving depending mm -hmm. on what's going on. Yeah, yeah we Sorry. talked to uh, immigration advocate Tim Isaacson on the show on mm -hmm. an earlier episode, and he was talking, I was like, I was like, how do how do uh, evangelical Christians so often miss all the like repeated uh, charges to be kind to the foreigner yeah. in your land to treat the immigrant well and not oppress them? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, we we read um, to answer questions that we're currently asking, and when we're not around that or when we're not close enough to it, uh, we're blind to it, even yeah. in the text, even if mm -hmm. we're reading it. And I think that that yeah. kind of blindness is, is sort of a common thing. Mm -hmm. and yeah, or they read oh, yeah. it as just a historical matter mm -hmm. of, well, and it conveniently you can say, well, that was Israel and mm -hmm. that was, you know, these yeah. Levitical law and, you know, prophets and all that. Um, and yet, in the same breath, they'll take a passage like Second Chronicles 714. It's like, oh, if... If you will turn from your sins, God will heal your nation. And yeah. then they claim that United States is right, and it doesn't make wow. any sense. It's like, oh, yeah. but I don't need to take care of the the stranger, or the orphan, mm -hmm. yeah. and all that. Yeah. But you know, I'm going to claim that God is going to heal the United States through Second Chronicles <laughs> yeah. seven fourteen. Or yeah. I think oh, yeah. that's the passage. Anyways, yeah. you know, we've all heard it. It's funny whenever people mention like a biblical view of blank, like you know, nation or whatever, and I'm always like, yeah, you know, you kind of picked that biblical like mm -hmm. there's a there's a mary there's a, a lot the bible is saying a lot of things and we tend to like kind of we'll pick the one thing that kind of sits like oh we'll disregard what we don't like we'll say oh that was a cultural thing that's a historical thing but then the one that oh this yeah. is this is god's message to us right now and mm -hmm. i'm always interested by the motivations and what yeah. they discard and what they decide to keep and it's always fascinating absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and we you know we too are members of that community though yeah. so i think it's interesting like i'll easily when i'm when i'm uh i'll open the episode by saying i'm a student ministries director at a local church and then you won't you won't hear from me for the rest of the podcast anything positive about the church <laughs> i'm sorry you know it's a problem yeah. i have but uh what what makes what makes the fact that you are a Christian, what what should make the fact that I'm a Christian, uh, what should be distinct about the way yeah. I approach deep-set uh, yeah. racial tensions? What do you think? I just finished reading a book called Mirror to the Church. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's Rebuilding Faith Following Genocide in Rwanda. Mm. It's by... Uh, Emmanuel Kotongole. And he talked about that Rwanda was the most deeply evangelized country wow. uh, in Africa. It's like 94% were Christians. And they, that was a product of Western missionaries. 
the work yeah. of Western missionaries, right? Yeah. And yet, you have this horrible genocide that happens. And it happened in 1994, the week of Easter, after people had actually worshiped together and celebrated the resurrection of Christ. People were taking up machetes and killing those same people that had been in the pews and saying, sorry, I have to do this. The law says I have to. Yeah. I'm being told. And so, you know. And he says it's a fundamental failure to shift your identity from these sort of Tutsi versus Hutu or, you know, these earthly categories that we've created. You've never transferred your citizenship into the kingdom of heaven, which has completely different values and calls us to love everyone, even enemies. You would never hear Jesus saying you should pick up an machete and kill your enemies right he says love your enemies and so it's this, this sense of like radical otherworldly love and my faith you know commands me to exercise that sort of radical love and i hear a lot of people talk about what about rule of law you yeah, know when yeah. it comes to the immigration conversation well uh-huh. rule, rule of law is great mm-hmm. we need it right we'd, yeah. we'd be in chaos without it but when you overemphasize it and make yeah. it the primary concern above all concerns what you do is you become very distorted right and so this is what happened with the pharisees who were all about the rule of law but this is talking Mm -hmm. about god's law and when jesus healed someone who was sick with a withered hand they were like why are you healing (laughs) that guy yeah. We're gonna kill you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's Sunday. You're don't a you know? lawbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. You know? we don't heal him on Sundays. Law and order. Yeah, yeah. He's like, <laughs> you know, and so he he kind of entertains their interrogation mm-hmm. briefly. Yeah, yeah. Which he doesn't do very often. Most of the time, he just moves on. Yeah. You know, um, but he 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 answers them, and they didn't like their answer. So after that, it says in the text, you know, after that they, you know plotted to kill him (laughs) because he's so busy healing people you know Mm -hmm. but this is what happens to us when we prize the legality of things over human lives and that's what's happened and and what's unfortunate is when you see people who claim the faith doing that in large numbers Mm -hmm. and that has to do with we haven't transferred our identity from you know, the United States of America to the kingdom of God. Yeah. There's still this, oh, but this is the way it should be, you know, based on these boundaries Mm -hmm. and and all that. So. Yeah. One of my (laughs) biggest, we're talking about, you know, following the law, like it it would, one of my biggest frustrations with the sessions when he announced DACA was being ended was he would keep bringing up how we have to follow the rule of law, law, as, as if there was some, something like, as if it was an easy, clear cut, rule like law as far as immigration goes and it's like what i almost wanted to shout back at him what law are you talking about what (laughs) what do you do you even know what you're saying when you say we have to follow laws of immigration like they're it's a mess like it's a disaster and to like emphasize it so much Mm -hmm. when like there's nothing there there's nothing like palpable or like it's just it's it's kind of a it's it's, like a mantra an empty mantra yeah yeah there's (laughs) so if you want to think about this even theologically and i I would say this to christians like christians who believe in the fall Mm -hmm. right who believe that sin entered the world and corrupted everything 
And that's why we have wrinkles. That's why we get mm -hmm. the flu. That's why people get hurt. Mm -hmm. That's why people murder Cain killed Abel. That's why we get jealous of one another. And we're talking about things on a small scale. Mm -hmm. So if we're like this as individuals, what makes us think that we can erect uh, systems that are completely yeah. just? Yeah. You know, whether it's healthcare or economics or criminal law or um, excuse me, or criminal justice or anything really yeah. that where sin hasn't seeped in and distorted things so that it actually exploits the weak and hurts <laughs> the weak or, you know, I, I mean, if you, if you even think about it from a basic standpoint, you would yeah. understand that, we, you know, of all people, Christians should understand. And also systems tend to justify themselves. They yeah. tend to protect mm -hmm. themselves. I mean, even something like a mega church, right? Yeah. Or the way that um, a denomination does things, you know, it's like, uh, or, you know, something that's very staunchly patriarchal. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a woman who wants to bring a charge against a man, the system is not going to work in her favor in yeah. a patri you know, within a patriarchal mm -hmm. system. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah. So it's not because she's a feminist and she's yeah. a feminazi or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that's been really tough in this season for me um, is is seeing the brokenness of the systems. Yeah. They've nev it's never been clear to me um, because it's now like reaching into the lives and families of mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. immigrants we go to church with or That's kids right. we've spent yeah. years mentoring in our neighborhood. So seeing the corruption of the systems and uh, still like politically... I'd like to be an optimist. Like I want not an optimist who like thinks everything's okay. Let me re I'd like to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to engage hopefully while knowing that things are broken and I'm finding it harder and harder to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you encourage me? <laughs> <laughs> I could try. <laughs> yeah, okay. Go ahead, I'm ready. <laughs> Putting on my counseling hat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't really know how to answer. So I guess I'll just start talking and see what comes out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> I just think about the suffering that I've endured in my own life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when you're engaged with or when you're interacting with other people's suffering, you know, um, it's one thing. But I, I sort of derive lessons from my own life, right? So a few years ago, I was in going through this horrible trial. And it was, it was just, it was so hard. I still remember I was taking a walk. My mother was in the ICU. My father was decompensating. My brother was decompensating. You know, we were all like completely falling apart. And I remember I was on a walk trying to clear my head before I had to go back to the hospital to take my shift, uh, you know, bedside vigil next to my mother. And I sat on the bench and I just said, God, I honestly have no imagination for any sort of deliverance out of the situation other than the death of every person. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, yeah. mine, my mom's, my dad's, my brother's, you know, it's like, yeah. uh, it, and it wasn't that I was suicidal or homicidal. That's not it. It's this, just a sense of despair yeah. where you yeah. just go, I just don't have any vision forward. Yeah. And like, you just think of the worst case scenario, like I am living the worst case scenario and there is no way out. And I feel so trapped and so oppressed and boxed in mm -hmm. and I'm just panicking. Right. And so I prayed this and I was like, 
do you have anything to say? I was like, nothing. I was like, I still feel like crap. So, <laughs> you know, I went about my day. And all I can say is that over the ensuing months, God showed ways forward within that. Mm-hmm. And he opened all these doors that I hadn't even, I, I never even saw. I couldn't have. I didn't have the imagination for it. Yeah. That you could live the worst case scenario and God is still present and he is still working and he is still loving and providing and and all i can say is that there it took probably about three years even after that point for me to be begin to see the fruit of that time period yeah and so i think we sometimes underestimate the timeline that it'll take for things to kind of play out yeah especially in god's economy uh, which is deeply mysterious to me yeah you know you just think oh, if God cares about what I say, he's going to like speak audibly to me and there's going to be this really dramatic deliverance. And, you know, sometimes that happens, but most of the time it doesn't, right? And we have to have an answer for those times that it doesn't, Mm -hmm. like in terms of, you know, what do I do with that? Do I lose faith? Do I just go insane? Yeah. You know, do I, what do I do? All options I've tabled recently. Exactly. Yeah. And, And so... I think it's very difficult to watch other people suffer, especially at the hands of the state or of cold-hearted people, um, and to hear people that you love being talked about in such demeaning ways. That is so hard. Mm -hmm. But all you know is God sees and he cares, and there is a way forward for each of them in ways that we don't know. So we engage not in this worldly way, but we intersect with the world, right? So there are times when it's appropriate to, to call your senators and you know and say, hey, I, I'm advocating for this. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, and then you also pray, and then you also sit in the living room with people who are hurting. You do all of those things, yeah. and somehow, all of that matters. Yeah. Um, and the hope is really in what's unseen, right? right? Uh, because what you see is a mess. Yeah. And it's horrible. And sometimes you just think, gosh, all these people need to die <laughs> like, yeah. who are causing me problems. Just another flood, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. And I love that in the Psalms, you have all these prayers of lament, yeah. mm-hmm. which you don't hear. You know, you just don't hear these things in, in no. contemporary praise and worship. But Eugene Peterson has this wonderful book uh, called Praying the Psalms or mm. Learning to Pray Through the Psalms. And, and there's this, emphasis on enemy talk yeah it's like you know and he i think it's psalm 137 at the end he's like i hope that you know you you see your infant's heads dashed upon the rocks you know yeah and it's basically the people of israel who have been under the oppression and mass murder of this other you know nation Mm -hmm. so there's tremendous anger and anguish and and all that going on and he's like well it's right there i mean you uh, some people want to do psalmectavines, but that's not really mm-hmm. helpful, right? Because what you do is you bring all that hatred mm-hmm. and despair and anger into prayer so that God can transform it mm-hmm. into something else. That yeah. you know, He does something that we can't do for ourselves when we yeah. do that. Um, but you have all this triumphalism in Western Christianity that mm-hmm. that that pushes against that and t- and kind of tells us you shouldn't do that. Yeah. So we pray like. Oh Lord, help me forgive my enemies. Yeah. You know, and it's like it's not honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I really, I feel such hatred yeah. and rage, and I don't know what to do with that. You know, yeah. won't you do something? So, I don't know. 
Yeah. It's helpful. Oh, no, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I was reading uh, Rebecca Solnit is an author I, I like a lot. And she has a book called Hope in the Dark. And she's like, she distinguishes hope from optimism or pessimism, right? Mm-hmm. Optimism thinks things are going to go okay no matter what I do. And pessimism would say things are things are all going to go bad no matter mm-hmm. what I do. But the path of hope is saying that, like, although we can't see it, the fact that it's unknown means there's room to act, room to envision a better future, room mm-hmm. to do those things. And, um, and uh, I found that really helpful idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we mentioned the prof, like laments. I've just started reading a book by Sung Chen Ra called yeah. A Prophetic Lament. I think that's what I'm it's even called. It, yeah. And I'm only, it, I'm like super early in, so I'm not. But the idea that like we were missing an aspect of the Christian life and we take out you know, in the U.S., we're like, I think we view, like what you said, like triumphalism, like we view any sort of like pain as like a neg, like something's wrong with our spirituality, our spiritual lives, mm-hmm. if we're like feeling, experiencing pain or having any sort of difficulty. And, and he's, one of his arguments is that because we have blinders on to the, you know, lament Psalms, we can't really understand or um, reach out to those who are marginalized because we don't have that, we don't have that mindset or that mentality of, of pain. Like we're, we're not, it's not like a holistic part of our worship. And it was, it's really, and so far it's really interesting and yeah. and it speaks a lot to, maybe that's kind of like, we have just these, like we're almost blind to that because we we want to leave that aspect of the Psalms, aspect of worship out, the lament. So uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just yeah. don't like it. <laughs> so sad. And it's like, and oh, he, he's just something really great about like, instead of like, joining people in the pain we always want to like pull up like cheer them up like oh hey don't you know just just every god everything's okay with mm-hmm. you know this like kind of like um unrealistic like not that optimism but this um what's the word i'm looking for not optimism i don't know i can't remember the word but like the sense of like oh just just trust like this like these platitudes that don't mm-hmm. really mean anything instead of joining them in in their pain and their mm-hmm. struggle we're trying to just all you do is believe in, yeah, <laughs> yeah. almost like just say, oh, it's just you don't have enough faith or you don't have enough mm-hmm. of this or that. Something's wrong with you. And here, let me pull you up to where I'm at. Just don't worry about anything, you know, and yeah. um, how it's really harmful to, to our witness and to our work with, with those in, in need. So, but. Yeah, though, if you read the book of Job, you know, and <sighs> his friends like have all these really, actually, if you read what his friends say to him and you like mm-hmm. were to like, Posted as like an independent quote out of context. Mm-hmm. It sounds really good. Like, the advice of literature, <laughs> yes, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. You know, and then you read it and you're like, God is very angry. You know, mm. and he says, Job, you can pray for your friends so I don't like destroy them. <laughs> you yeah, know? And, but he, you know, Job interrogated God, right? Mm. And because he dealt with God directly, yeah. these guys were dealing with him, uh, sort of talking about God in this objective, fied, mm-hmm. yeah. separate, abstract sort of way. Yeah. And then they were also doing that with his suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't enter into any of the mystery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but but Job's heart was more straight, even though mm-hmm. he questioned God. And that's what we do in prayer. Yeah. And then God answers us. You know. Yeah. Well, I think. This is a great point to close on. We're at this point yeah. of mystery. We're living mm-hmm. into this tension. Yeah. Um, Judy, thanks for joining us, for speaking to yeah. it, for telling us a bit of your story, and for your ongoing work. So if yeah. if people listen to this and they're interested in reading more of your work, uh, where can they find you? I'm at lifereconsidered.com. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, a lot of great stories there. I've been reading it for a while. Yeah. 
We also want to thank our host, Atlanta Vintage Books. We record live here in the metaphysical reading room. Um, uh, so the sound of books in, is in the air. Uh, yeah, you can feel it. Yeah, you can feel it. It's They're, a constant hum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're great. Um, they actually are so supportive of this podcast that if you come into this mm-hmm. bookstore and say Tim and Ian or Ian and Tim sent you, they'll accept either. Yeah. They will give you a 10% discount off of your purchase price. Uh, so so just to let them know that you're listening and involved, uh, come stop by, talk yeah. books with some people, uh, uh, shop around, and then just let them know Tim and Ian sent you on your way out. That would be appreciated here mm-hmm. and by us as well. Yeah. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us at whatareyoureadingpodcast.com. And uh, that's our little hub for finding us anywhere else online. We've got Facebook page, um, Instagram, a little Goodreads group that we've got going. Um, so find a way to get in touch. Let us know what you're reading. Um, let us know, even if, uh, like, you know, throughout each episode, if there's a book you'd recommend on the topic, let us know. And uh, we would love to hear from you. And also, if you're uh, up for it, rate us on iTunes. We, we would love five stars. But, you know, I'm not picky. It's okay. We'll take four and a half. We'll take four, yeah. <laughs> it comes down. We'll do a little four and a half, four and three quarters, maybe. And uh, we're going to end with a book quote as usual. And uh, this quote is uh, from Marilyn Robinson, the great Marilyn Robinson, who kind of wish she was saying it and not yeah. us. Maybe we could find us somewhere like her saying this, but, it, uh, but I, love, I love her voice. But uh, so here it is. Marilyn Robinson says, I was read to as a small child. I read on my own as soon as I could and recall being more or less overwhelmed again and again, if not by what the books actually said, by what they suggested, what they helped me to imagine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>